Good evening, guys. Welcome to RUF. Um, if you didn't read on your announcements at the top, we uh, our hope and prayer every week is that you come here and that you find RUF to be a safe place to process uh, because we are all in process and we have been processing together the claims that Luke, the physician, makes about Jesus, the Messiah, in the Gospel of Luke. So I invite you to turn there. We'll be in Luke chapter 9 uh, tonight. I wonder what you think about when you think about the word glory. It's one of those, uh, if, you think, if you're thinking of it in Christian-y or churchy terms, it's one of those words that gets thrown out a lot. But do we actually know what it means? Um, do, we actually, do we actually really know um, how it's used in the Bible? And I'm not breaking that all down tonight. But tonight, we're thinking about Jesus and glory. Jesus came in glory. Jesus brought glory. Jesus invited us into his glory. And God the Father, through Jesus, invites us into his glory. What in the world does that mean? And hopefully we'll see that a little bit tonight here as we look at um, some familiar things that Jesus says and then kind of an amazing story that happens to a few of the disciples. So Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 18, let's read this together. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah and others the one uh, that one of the prophets of old has risen. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the son of man will be ashamed. When he comes in his glory and the glory of the father And of the holy angels. But I tell you truly there are some standing here. Who will not taste death. Until they see the kingdom of God. Now about eight days after these sayings. He took with him Peter, James and John. And he went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying. The appearance of his face was altered. His clothes became dazzling white. And behold two men were talking with him. Moses and Elijah. Who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he'd said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as, they'd entered the, as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. 
listened to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and they told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's pray together before we look into this. Heavenly Father, we come now, as we do every week, and whatever is said here tonight, whatever is heard, we would ask just one thing, that it would be you speaking, that it would be your words, that they would be words of life, they would be words of grace, and that they would be words of truth. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Don't know how many, don't know how many uh, Bon Jovi fans we have here, um, but there's a great Bon Jovi song. It made my top five list of top five songs I would sing if I ever got on American Idol. Uh, that didn't happen, so you didn't hear me sing it. But uh, it's called Blaze of Glory, and this is how it goes. Well, they tell me that I'm wanted. Yeah, I'm a wanted man. I'm a colt through your stable. I'm what Cain was to Abel. Mr. Catch me if you can. I'm going down, down in a blaze of glory. Take me now, but know the truth. I'm going out in a blaze of glory. Vintage Bon Jovi about a gunslinger who's not going down without a fight. Jim Elliott, switching gears there. Jim Elliott. Um, famous for a lot of reasons, but his most famous quote, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Uh, Jim Elliott proved that he meant what he wrote by giving his life. Uh, him and four others lived that out to the ultimate, giving their lives for the cause of the gospel as he and his companions took the gospel to the Aka Indians of Ecuador back in the, uh, I think it was early, late 50s, early 60s. Should have looked up the date. Um, they, know, they went knowing full well that the Aka Indians were headhunters, meaning like their whole lives was centered around killing people. Um, they went knowing that, but they went because they were willing to give what they could not keep, their own lives. To gain that which could not be lost, the gospel. And could somebody close that door for me? Um, and the, uh, the gospel and giving it to them and preaching it to those Indians. And interestingly enough, some of the men's wives themselves went on to live with the very men and families of the men that killed their husbands. And the gospel took root in that place. Admittedly, if you look throughout church history... There's a lot of people, men, women, and even children, that went down for the cause of the gospel in a blaze of glory. And admittedly, when you look through church history, you will find person after person who, at least through the world's eyes, went down with nobler deaths than Jesus himself. Jesus was hung out to dry, his friends abandoned him, he spoke not a word, and he was hung outside of the city. To be forgotten forever. And of course that's not what happened. But here's the thing. Jesus did indeed come in glory. But it wasn't the glory that the people of Israel were looking for. In fact, it was so unexpected the way that he came. That even when he's in his hometown. If you remember back in Luke chapter 4. In his hometown. His own hometown tried to lynch him. After he preached on a Sabbath. Right? In fact, he was actually the, exactly the opposite of what his disciples expected. And whatever his disciples expected, what we read tonight totally threw them for a loop. 
That Jesus comes in glory, but it's not the glory that we expected. We've been asking the question, Dr. Who? Dr. Luke, who is this Jesus? And tonight Luke wants to tell us about Jesus and glory. So three things there if you're of the note-taking type um, in your handout if you want to follow along. But the first one is this. The glory of his name. The glory of his name. This is what I want you to understand. If, If you don't have your Bibles open... If you do have your Bibles open, look to the end of chapter 9. We come in chapter 9 to a pivotal moment in the Gospel of Luke because at the end of the chapter 9, this is what we read. In verse 51 of chapter 9, we read that when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So after chapter 9, the whole rest of the Gospel is going to be Jesus making his way to Jerusalem to die. And he knew that. Okay? Everything will be different after the events of this chapter. And all of it hinges on what we read tonight. The now explicitly clear identity of Jesus as the Christ of God. It's been heavily implied in everything that he's been doing and saying. But y'all remember, he, nowhere does Jesus just say, hey guys, by the way, I'm the Messiah. What are y'all doing? He hasn't done that and he won't do that. Um, but here we get him with, he's with his disciples, the twelve. And he says... Who am I? Who am I? Who do the people say that I am? Right? And so here for the first time in his public ministry, the 12, with the 12, he's outed. You are the Christ of God. Now Peter confesses that, the disciples are confessing that, and they don't actually have any clue what it means. But what did it mean? What does it mean? It's always funny, I don't know if y'all have ever heard this, but there are actually people, and you might be one of them, I just think this is funny. Some people actually do grow up thinking Christ is Jesus' last name. Have y'all ever heard that? I've heard multiple testimonies to that effect, that people grew up, they just thought Christ was Jesus' last name. It is indeed not his last name. It's a title. Jesus says, you are, I mean, Peter says, you are the Christ of God. What does that mean? It means, we've said it before, he's the Messiah. He's the one. He's the anointed one. He is the one that all the law and all the prophets has been pointing to. He's it. And he's here. Okay? And here's the thing about everything that leading, leading up, all the history of God's people leading up to Jesus. There have been many, many priests prophets and kings who had been anointed to lead God's people, right? But throughout it all, there was always a hint or a foreshadowing that there would be one who would come that would be the greatest priest, the greatest prophet, and the greatest king. And Peter, in confessing Jesus as the Christ of God, is saying, that's what I believe you are. Now, granted, Peter does not fully understand what it means, But he says, that is who you are. And this is also part of this whole mountaintop experience that's kind of weird, right? The cloud that comes down, what is that? Well, every time God shows up in the Old Testament, he shows up in a cloud, right? Uh, And and, uh, oftentimes it's with thunder and lightning or like uh, Mount Sinai, it's in fire. Um, When the Jews are wandering through the wilderness, God leads them in the glory cloud. Uh, When he descends on Mount Sinai to give him the Ten Commandments, he descends in the glory cloud. When Solomon, uh, much later in Israel's history, dedicates the temple, God descends into the temple in the glory cloud. Whenever the cloud shows up, you knew that you were in the presence of the holiness and the majesty and the glory of God himself. That's what's happening on the mountain. 
Elijah and Moses being there, that's no mistake. Two of the greatest Old Testament prophets, but more than that, they represent the whole Old Testament. Maybe you've heard it um, uh, referred to as this, and Jesus refers to the Old Testament as this all throughout the Gospels. The law and the prophets. Moses, the law, Elijah, the prophets. So this is what's happening on the, on the mountain. It's as if the whole Old Testament itself has appeared in the persons of Moses and Elijah and saying, this is who we were telling you about. That's what's happening on the mountain, okay? He is the Christ of God. And Peter answers rightly. He says, you're not, some, you're not just some prophet like Elijah. You're not just some preacher, uh, street preacher like John the Baptist, or river preacher, I guess. He was at the Jordan. Um, you are the Christ of God. Here's what this means for you and me. Every person in this room, every person in the world must deal with this question. Who is Jesus? That is what's happening here. This is what Jesus is bringing to the forefront for his 12 disciples. Everyone in the world at one time or another will have to answer the question, who is Jesus? Okay. Some uh, throughout history have thought Jesus as a legend. If that is true, you at least have to admit this. He is the greatest legend that has ever lived or not lived. He's the greatest legend. He's the most well-known, enduring legend of all history. Okay? Some people thought he was, he was yes, indeed, a great teacher. If, you, if that's all you see him as, that's, that's great. But you also have to admit, he's the greatest teacher that has ever walked this earth. His teachings have endured like no other teacher's teachings have endured and spread throughout multiple religions and multiple cultures like no other teacher ever before. Some people just say he was a great sage. And if so, once again, you at least have to admit he is the wisest person that has ever lived. Jesus is something special. And every single person in all of history at one point or another in their life will have to deal with the question, who is Jesus? And I love, well, sorry, I love how C.S. Lewis uh, takes it. Uh, But here's the thing. Most people will admit to the things that I just listed. What most people have a problem taking the next step is that he was God, right? And C.S. Lewis takes that on in Mere Christianity, and I love the way he puts this. Listen to this. He says, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he was a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher, because he has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Love that. C.S. Lewis is amazing. Albert Schweitzer is a well-known... Uh, his uh, scholar who's investigated the real Jesus. Maybe some of y'all have investigated this guy in, uh, in your Christianity classes. But he said this. The Jesus of Nazareth who came forward publicly as the Messiah, who preached the ethic of the kingdom of God, who founded the kingdom of heaven upon earth and died to give his work its final consecration, never had any existence. Okay? That's well and good. And if it's true, you at least have to admit he's the greatest person who never existed. Do you not? 
I love it. I've got this one in your handout by Donald McLeod. The man who criticizes the apostles, his own culture, moves so freely among women, teaches most splendid parable, preached the Sermon on the Mount, prayed John 17. Who created him? Which of the gospel writers had the literary genius? Which of them created Jesus? It's a great question. We have all, at one point in our life, have to deal with the question, who is this Jesus? And the thing about the Jesus that the gospel writers present is that you have no middle ground with him. And that's why I think Lewis is right. Where either he was a madman, a liar, or he was Lord. I think those are the only choices you're really left with. But here's the question. How did Peter get it right? How did Peter come to the conclusion that he came to? I love this thought. How did Peter get it right? He listened to Jesus' words. He witnessed Jesus' work. And he witnessed how people responded to him, both positively and negatively. In other words, Peter did nothing different than what you and I do week in and week out right here for an hour. He didn't. I love how C.S. Lewis describes his, uh, his conversion in his book, Surprised by Joy. He says this. He says, I know very well when, but hardly how the final step was taken. I was on a drive one Sunday morning when I set out and I did not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. But when I reached the zoo, <laughs> I did. Yet I had not exactly spent the journey in thought, nor in great emotion, It was more like when a man, after a long sleep, still lying motionless in bed, becomes aware that he is now awake. The glory of his name, the Christ of God, the question that is screaming at us at these pages is, have you heard it? And do you know it? But Jesus takes it a step further. He doesn't stop there. He asks about, he talks about following him. So we see the second thing here is the glory of of his calling. I don't know how many of y'all have heard of uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer. He was the German martyr during World War II. Um, as the evils of the Third Reich fully materialized, um, he personally struggled with God's call in his life. He'd gone to seminary, he'd got his doctor, he wanted to be a preacher. He had every opportunity to, to move to Britain and live there for the rest of his life. But he felt such a pull back to Germany as all the Third Reich stuff was, uh, and all the stuff under Hitler was formulating, so he went back. He uh, it was explicitly following Jesus in the decision that he made to go back to Germany. And it ended up costing his life uh, before the end of the war. And he's famous for this quote. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And here's the thing about Bonhoeffer. When he wrote that, he did not know he was going to die the way that he did. But he did know that sometimes that means literally Jesus might call you to die. Right? The disciples were convinced that Jesus was the Christ, but that does not mean they understood what it meant. And we actually are clued into that fact when they are utterly blown away at what Jesus says here. Verse 22, look, Jesus just burst their entire bubble and says, great, you got the answer right. Oh, by the way, people got to kill me. Uh, that's the, and then he puts the cherry on top with verse 23. And if anyone would come after me, He must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Let's break those down real quick. And probably a very popular verse that you've heard broken down before. But break those down real quick. Deny yourself. If we're honest, 
In our heart of hearts, have we ever really believed that following Jesus would cost us anything? Think about that. If we're really honest, have we really believed that following Jesus would cost us anything, let alone our whole selves, as Jesus tells us, to lay aside? Who Jesus is and what he came to do led him to the cross. It led him to ultimate costs of himself, to his comfort, and to his possessions. And if we're going to take part in what he is about, we must at least expect as much as what he got. Right? And there's a question worth asking yourself. And this one, this one digs deep and we could spend weeks on it. Have you ever denied yourself anything for the sole purpose that you love Jesus? Have you ever denied yourself anything for the sole purpose, for the sole reason that you love Jesus? Not because of guilt or shame. But because you love Jesus. I had a seminary professor that said it this way. When was the last time that you gave up something for no other reason than the fact that you love Jesus? When was the last time? I don't say that out of guilt. I say that let's think about that really. It's a question worth meditating on. Second, he says, take up your cross. Take up your cross. You've got to feel the full weight of what Jesus says here. Not only are they reeling from the fact that he's just said he's going to die, but he says that if they want to follow him, they're going to have to go through the same thing. Not just go through the same thing. He says you're going to have to do it daily. What? One, they don't know what the cross means as, 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 as far as what it means with Jesus, right? Like we do. It's a big symbol in our heads. But they had no clue. The cross was the most brutal means of execution uh, that the Romans used. It was cruel and it was um, humiliating, okay? There was an incredible stigma associated with it. The closest parallel I think I could come up with in my head, and I don't think this is going too far, it would be the likes of someone like Martin Luther King during the civil rights era, claiming he was the Messiah, and then at a rally telling all of his followers, you must take up the white man's noose and follow me daily. You're feeling the way to that. <laughs> that is what Jesus tells them. He says, take up your cross. That's not just a, that's just not a, that's not a turn of words. We see this in Jesus's life, right? He, he carries the cross outside the town. When people were executed by crucifixion, they were forced to pick up the instrument of that execution and they were forced to carry it outside of the city where then they were nailed to it and killed on it. It was a one way trip to shame and death. That's the only picture that disciples have in their mind at this point. They don't understand that Jesus is going to do that for them, okay? But here's the thing. Jesus says if we're going to follow him, that is to be a daily part of our lives. So get this. Jesus is talking much more than about just the ordinary trials of life. He's saying that following him is like a daily crucifixion of self. It's powerful. Verse 24 he says, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever will lose his life saves it. The word life there in the Greek is psyche, right? It's a word that refers to the inner life, the foundation of your person, what, you fund, what fundamentally makes you, you. Psyche, right? Jesus says you must lose that. You must lose yourself to follow me. And third, he says, follow me. Okay, so our comfort in all of this, at least, 
is that we're following Jesus, meaning he went before us, right? It's a path that the disciples will find out and that we see that leads to continual self-denial, continual self-sacrifice. It's a path that leads to continual derision from the world and the comforts that we previously found in it. Who's ready to sign up? Right? Does he want to lose his closest 12 friends? What is he doing? This is it, y'all. Those who would save their lives, according to Jesus, must lose them. Here's the thing. The road ahead for every single one of you in this room. The road ahead for every single one of you in this room is littered, littered with the the temptation of self. Self-preservation, self-soothing, self-security, self-medication, self-advancement, self, 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 self. Because if you want to get ahead in this world, in a university, in the business world, you better be looking out for number one because nobody else is. Right? And the thing is, is you're going to be thinking about, the, I've got to get the right job, right? I've got to wait till the right time till we get married. I've got to, we've got to wait till the right time until we buy a house. We've got to wait till the right time until we have a kid. The list goes on and on and on because those are the things that get yourself ahead in the world. But Jesus looks at that. It was, well, it was Solomon first in Ecclesiastes that asked the question, what in the world is there for you to gain for your toil? It's the question that, that Solomon asked in the book of Ecclesiastes. But Jesus offers his own version here. He says, what gain would it be if you had the whole world? But forfeited your, what did he say? Self. There's other versions that say soul, but right here in Luke he says, What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but loses himself? The option before us, the option before us daily, daily, the options before you are this. Are you going to live for yourself? Are you going to lose yourself and live? That's the options that Jesus lays out before us. That's the glory of his calling. The glory (laughs) of his calling. Do you hear it? The last one is this. And I wish we had so much time to look into this. This transfiguration. We see the glory of the son. We have the glory of his name. The glory of his calling. Now the glory of the son. What exactly is going on on top of this mountain? His appearance is not just altered. We're told that he was transfigured. He was changed into something else. It's not just reflected, he's not just reflecting glory. What we get a picture of is that glory is coming out of him. It's weird, okay? Let's just admit it. But Hebrews 1, the author of Hebrews tells us this, that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Elijah, Moses, and the glory cloud are there. And Jesus is pretty much saying this, everything has been pointing to the fact that I am the final and ultimate version of getting to God. It's me. It's me. Who is this for? That's the question I want to ask. That's what I'll end with. Who is this for? Three answers. First, it was for the disciples. 
It was for these three disciples and then to pass on to the other side. Peter, James, and John were kind of, if you read through the gospel, they're kind of like the ringleaders of the disciples. Um, and so he takes them, the ringleaders, up on this mountain. Jesus has just rocked their world about what kind of Messiah he's going to be. He's going to be a suffering, dying Messiah. And he's rocked their world about if you're going to follow me, you've got to take that up too. Right? So he brings these three up on the mountain. He gives them a glimpse of his glory. Because they needed it. (laughs) They needed it. They were going to need it. What the disciples are seeing is something that is not of this world. And it's not just that it's something that's not yet. It's not just that it's something that's going to come in the future. It's something that's hidden. It's something that's covered. It's something that we cannot tap into uh, at a a whistle or or a snap of the fingers, right? Um, It's not of this world. It's not just something that's not yet. Um, A guy named Ed Meir says it's the unseeable glory... Of the everlasting. It's something that's there, but it's not. The disciples and the others, they thought their envisioning of the Messiah was that he was going to come in glory. And Jesus is showing that a glory is indeed what awaits. But at the moment, he's saying, what he's saying to them is, this world is not all there is. Everybody around Jesus that thought he was the Messiah or wanted him to be the Messiah had very worldly terms about what they wanted him to be. And what he is trying to get across to them is, this is not all there is. If I just set up a kingdom and all of a sudden Israel was the top nation in the world, that would not cure your problems. This is not all that there is. And also glory first comes through suffering. So it's first for the disciples, but it's second, it was for Jesus. We know that it was for Jesus because two people come to the moment, to the mountain, to talk with him, right? We get Moses and Elijah. They're there to talk to him. Can you just imagine just being a fly on the wall? Or on, I guess they didn't have a wall. There was like a rock, I guess. The fly on the rock listening to them talk. Moses, Elijah, and Jesus had a conversation. I would have liked to have been there. That would have been cool. What were they talking about? We're told. We're told what they were talking about. Of all the things that they could have been talking about, We're told that they were talking about his departure that he was about to accomplish there in verse 31. They spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. The Greek word there, exodus. Sound familiar? Of all the things that they could have talked about, they talk about his departure, his death. While Moses freed God's people from slavery in Egypt and led them to the promised land. Jesus is about to undergo his own personal exodus so that he can lead all the children of God out of the slavery of sin and death itself and to the promised land, wait for it, of God's glory. You see, this is what it tells us, finally. The mountaintop experience is about us. It's for us. How can sinful, messed up, and broken people like us get in to this glory? Only if Jesus himself leads an exodus greater than any Moses could have ever organized. Only if Jesus is a greater prophet than Elijah ever could have been. Only if that exodus Jesus goes through is into, through, and out of death itself. And the Bible tells us that one day, because of what Jesus did, the glory of the sun 
will be the glory of all the children of God. Paul talks about this in Romans 8, 18 through 21. He says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God and in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Y'all remember that line... In Amazing Grace, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. Have y'all ever sung that? I, I don't know if this is you, but I used to, you used to sing that like real fast. And like, when we've been there, where? Well, bright shining. Like, that's the place. The place is bright shining. Look at the sentence. When we've been there 10,000 years, doing what? Bright shining as the sun. When we've been there with Jesus, with God in eternity for 10,000 years, we will be shining just like Jesus on the mountaintop. We will be the ones bright shining. Look at verse 18 and then look at verse 28. Two of the biggest episodes that happened in these disciples' lives where Jesus finally makes it clear why he's come and what he's going to do. And then when he shows them his glory. And what are we told that Jesus was doing at the beginning of each of them? Praying. This one makes me feel guilty like you wouldn't believe. But you think about it. How can we commune with Jesus the way the disciples did? How can we commune with God the way that Jesus did? Praying. Listening to his word. Suffering with him. It's not hard to suffer, y'all. You know this. You feel the weight of this every day, do you not? What are you suffering for? If you're suffering for self, I know how you feel. I know that you're dying. Because that's how it feels. But this is how Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, we do not lose heart for the outer self is wasting away. But our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. What if, what if, what if the prayer that you're supposed to pray is not about finally getting what God has for you? What if the prayer you should pray is about God putting something in you? Something so magnificent, so majestic, so full of glory That Paul can look at everything in his life and say, it's but a light momentary affliction. What would that look like? Maybe you struggle with this. Maybe you struggle with prayer. Grab somebody afterwards and say, hey, would you pray for me? (laughs) Maybe you have no clue what to say. Read Romans 8. Paul says explicitly, the Spirit speaks for us in our weakness. 
when we don't have the words? What if we are destined for an eternal weight of glory? And what if that glory is the glory of the Son? It's an invitation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need your glory. We need the glory of the Son. We need to be set free from this bondage to death and decay that is all around us and inside of us. We thank you for being the God of glory and for making us your children and calling us your children of glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.